0: Um, as we're living in these challenging times, we of course have, uh, these large concerns that have changed our lives as it relates to, you know, our health and our mobility and economy, big, big, uh, big questions that we're contending with. But one of the things that has made these days so difficult is actually, um, the, the small joys, um, that are on pause right now that are suspended. The small things that we used to enjoy doing that at the moment uh, are suspended, and that can be anything from um, getting together with with uh, friends and going out, which it was a meaningful thing that right now is suspended. Or uh, for many of us in the Redeemer family who are sports fans, um, even the, the the small simple joy of sitting down and watching a game is something that's been suspended, and it just it feels different to have our life suspended in so many different uh, different ways, and. Um, and uh you know i I enjoy watching sports, and we watch uh sports here um at uh, in this house and Susan and I watch sports very differently. We'll watch the Raptors games, and uh I'm like one of these. it's never too late. oh, we might still win this thing, and Susan likes it when they're ahead by twenty points and they and if they're not ahead by twenty points, she just susan's like the second coach uh of the Toronto raptors and and uh right away. She's like, uh, you know, can can get frustrated, and um, so, sometimes you know it's like if she was the coach, people's jobs would be on the line. It's like the the Raptors lose a lead, and 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 uh, Susan's a, and and Susan's like Jefferson, you know, you're turning over the ball, you're coughing it up, you're leaving it like the luggage at the airport. And Gasol, you're nine feet tall. Why are you shooting three pointers? Go on to the paint, make everybody deal with your body. That's how you put you post up. And uh, intent, we watch it in two completely different ways. Our text uh, for this morning is uh, Matthew 21. It's the triumphant entry of Jesus as this is Palm Sunday. And one of the things that we observe in this text each year as the church pauses to reflect on um, this is the cheering, boisterous crowds, all the followers of Jesus who five days later turn out to be fickle fans. And uh, initially, they're yelling Hosanna, <clears throat> and five days later, they're, le- they're all leaving the stadium. And uh, we want to take a look at this text this morning as uh, we consider the implications of this. And we think about not only the goodness of the gospel and what is revealed in this text of what Christ did In that first century, but for the implications it has for us as a church in the 21st century, and so um, historically speaking, this week is referred to by the church as Passion Week, and meaning that the Passion of the Christ, the 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 purpose of the Christ, the the suffering of which he had, all being wrapped up in his tremendous passion and love for us as people, and all the things that he was willing to endure. Um, the last seven days leading up to the cross, um, this Passion Week. And so we're going to open it up this morning as we look at Matthew 21, Jesus being a king who extends grace that rescues us and restores us as he establishes kingdom in a way that's counterintuitive to us. But before he does those things, he actually confronts us. He's a king who confronts. Let's take a look at Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and they came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It's written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did and their children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never heard from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and he went out. Of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. This is God's word. We want to look at a few things from this text this morning, and to be encouraged on this Sunday. And the first thing I want to draw to your attention is that Jesus is a king who first confronts to bring comfort. And uh, we like hipster Jesus, the Jesus who sits with the outcast and the poor and the downtrodden, who sticks it to the religious crowd, um, who's there for the little guy. This is the Jesus that we're very comfortable with. But a controversial Jesus, a Jesus who would confront us, um, this is something that we're not comfortable with. As we look at this text, we find that Jesus confronts before he comforts. That the, the, the message of who Jesus is actually confronts us before it comforts us. I want you to notice a couple of things. Often throughout the Gospels, Jesus doesn't want people praising him for his miracles. In fact, you find lots of texts where he actually tells people, he's like, you know, don't don't say anything about this. Just go on your way. Here, though, um, he receives all of it. Often throughout the Gospels, he doesn't want these thronging crowds to interfere with his ministry. But on Palm Sunday, it's actually the reverse. He actually welcomes the thronging crowds. He actually welcomes all of the celebration, And he's actually forcing the religious hand, he's forcing all of the civic leaders to have to stop it. He allows all of it to go on. When you look at verse nine, it says, uh, they're yelling, Hosanna. And that's a a cry that that means God save us. Um, And Jesus accepts this public declaration. He actually personalizes it, um, that he is the God that has come to save. It's confronting. He actually calls the temple, my house. When he goes to clean it out, he says, He he appropriates it to himself. He's publicly declaring himself as God and the messianic king. And so he's this king who confronts because his claim is um, not that he's just a nice teacher that we can lump in with the rest and say, well, let's just take all the good from all of the religions and kind of try and apply it to our lives. And Jesus said some good things. And so did Buddha and so did Muhammad and so did the Hare Krishna and and, uh, so did Gandhi. And so let's just put Jesus in that group. He's actually quite confronting. Because he's not saying that he's a religious guru who has truths about God. Palm Sunday is Jesus receiving all the praise as he is God. It's a declaration that he is God. He goes to the cross because he makes this declaration that he is God. And so we only have one of two choices. And as the great writer C.S. Lewis said, we have to either crown him as Lord or we have to crucify him as a lunatic. And those are the choices that Jesus really gives to that first century church. And even today in the 21st century that we have to think about, he's saying, you have to crown me or kill me. And uh, I have a good friend. His name is Tim Keller. He doesn't know ex- I exist, but he's such a good friend of mine. Um, he's just said so many things that have been formative in my life. And uh, when Tim was, uh, I call him Tim, by the way. When Tim was in um, college, uh, he was part of a, a campus ministry and there was a a teacher who was really formative in his life and her name was Barbara Boyd. And Barbara Boyd was once, once teaching on lordship and she was speaking about how Jesus was this king who comforted, but before he comforted, he confronted and Barbara said it this way, my name is Barbara Boyd. If you say, come in Barbara, stay out Boyd, that doesn't work for me. You can't say, come and save your stay out, Lord. You can't say, come and help or stay out, King. And again, DeBoer from the great C.S. Lewis, who wrote in the Narnia series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he gives this great allegory to Christ to get us to think about the greatness of this Christ who is both transcendent and tender, right? Powerful and patient, transcendent and eminent. And C.S. Lewis depicted Jesus as the great King Aslan. And when they meet Aslan, or they're, uh, sorry, before they meet Aslan, when they're talking about Aslan, Mr. Beaver is talking about him with the children. And uh, this is uh, a great dialogue that's exchanged uh, here. And it says this, Aslan is a lion, the, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You see, that's the Jesus that comes in on the Matthew 21 uh, Palm Sunday as he enters into Jerusalem. He's the king. He's good, but he's not safe. And so uh, Jesus is also a king who confronts in the sense that he um that he flips the tables in the temple when he gets there right he flips the temples he's flipping the religious tables he's confronting our notions about how it is uh, that we are received by god by flipping those those uh those tables in the temple he's confronting the idea that any of us can just live good moral lives and we look at um, what's going on in the world during this um, COVID crisis, and there are a lot of people doing a lot of loving, caring, generous, sacrificial things, right? As Christians, we don't want to be so prideful to think we've got the high ground on morality, that if you're not a, a Christian, you can't be loving and caring to your neighbor. There are scores of people in this city who haven't placed their faith in Christ who are truly being generous and caring and, and, and uh loving their neighbors, but Jesus flips the religious tables in this text, revealing that no, actually, it's not just living a good moral life that God accepts. It's that we must accept that he's who he claimed that he was, that he was the son of God. Let's move on to the, the next thing, which is that Jesus established his kingdom in a way that's counterintuitive. So when you look at verses four and five, we find that he enters in on this donkey and it's very intentional. It's a 500-year-old prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. And this is, an, this is a well-known you know, messianic image and, uh, of, of a king entering into uh, a city, a conquering t- king who's entering. And so it's like the crowds are recognizing the messianic implications of all of this. Because you know, they're familiar with the Old Testament processionals of kings entering cities. They're familiar with this. They're familiar with the miracles that Jesus has done. And so they're, they're seeing him as this great deliverer of, uh, of uh, the people of Jerusalem. And, um, but what's astounding is there's this huge paradox going on of both insight and misunderstanding. For example, son of David, that has ruling implications to call him the son of David, ruling implications. Hosanna, that has saving implications. So you've got ruling implications and saving implications. So on one hand, it seems like there's tremendous insight on who Jesus is, but then five days later, they're like, crucify him. So there's also radical misunderstanding about who Jesus is because he's ultimately not working things out according to their plans. He's already got his plans. He's the king. Ultimately, what's going on here is that, yes, Jesus is the king, but he's not the king that they want. And I think if we're honest, not just in that first century context, but in this 21st century context, quite often, Jesus doesn't show up like the king that we want. He doesn't do the thing in our life the way that we want it, when we want him to do it, in the way that we want. We consider this here in this quarantine Consider the relevance of this text in this global pandemic. Here we are, we're having church over Zoom. We're gathered in our houses all across multiple cities and towns this morning. And we can say, what are you doing, God? Here's what I would suggest that you do. Um, This text reminds us of the age-old mismatch between what we think God ought to do for us And what God actually provides for us. They all had ideas of what Jesus ought to have provided for them. And what he ended up providing was counterintuitive to what they thought. In the first century, they're thinking, deliver us from Rome, Jesus. Rome is our biggest problem. Right now we can be saying, get rid of COVID on Monday, Jesus. That's our biggest problem. He wasn't going to deliver them from Rome. He was going to deliver them from sin and death. But the thinking, of course, was, well, if he's not going to deliver me from Rome, what do I need him for? Crucify him. Well, if he's not going to deliver me from all of my problems the way that I want him to do it in the timing that I'd prefer that he do it, what do I need him for? Crucify him. And so I want you to notice the striking contrast between you know, this king that they expect and the king that they get. Right? He's, he's coming in doing this processional, and of course what they would have expected, which is what the picture looked like in the ancient world, was a, a an armor clad king on a war horse. That's not what they get. They get a simple clad civilian riding on this small colt. And it's actually super humiliating. Uh, it's an embarrassing image. It's a humiliating image. Um, it doesn't look majestic at all. They all want Thor on Black Stallion, and instead they get plain-clothes Jesus riding little Sebastian. And that's not what they want. And um, so he, he, he is a king who established his kingdom in a way that was counterintuitive. He's coming to rule and he's coming to save, but he's not doing it like anybody expected. And he didn't usher in his kingdom By taking up power, he laid his power down. He didn't expand his kingdom by shedding other people's blood. He shed his own blood. We know these things, church. And all of this is culminating in this truth that our God humiliated himself and he triumphed through weakness. And you and I receive our salvation by confessing our weakness. We're continually reformed by the power of the spirit by continually living in confession of our weakness. And here in this COVID epidemic, we don't have this abstract God in an abstract spiritual realm who is indifferent with our weakness or unfamiliar with our weakness. We have a loving God who in Jesus Christ concretely entered into our suffering, understands and is intimately acquainted with suffering. He is with us to strengthen us in our suffering. And of course the promise of the gospel is the ultimate eradication of all suffering, which the truth of that news affects the day to day. In the same way that tomorrow morning when you wake up, you're gonna check the news. What is going on in the world? What is going on in this city? What are we permitted to do and not do? You're gonna check the news and whatever the news says on Monday morning, it is going to have a very real emotional and psychological impact and it is going to affect your day and your week because news has that kind of power. The news of the crisis of the day meets our great news. It is swallowed up in the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is, the, it is the ultimate news of a king who came, who understands our suffering, who is with us. It is that news that affects gloriously and powerfully our day-to-day, giving us hope and strength for the moment. When you look at verse 10 and 11, he enters the temple. And when he enters the temple, it's the whole reason he went into Jerusalem. That's the whole point. He goes, this whole thing happens because he's going to the temple. That's why. And he goes to flip tables. Why does he do that? Well, it's not just an outbreak. Uh, It's not an outbreak of violence and anger because outbreaks of violence and anger are signals of deficient character and Jesus was not deficient in character. So it's not that at all. It's actually um, a judicial act. He's going into the temple and he's doing something to vindicate us as God's children. There's something bigger going on here. It's not just an unjust money exchange. I remember growing up and hearing sermons where they would emphasize on the the religious people were ripping people off, they were ripping them off, they were making money. Well, that's true, that was happening. It's terrible, abhorrent, and it's not unlike uh, religious uh, entrepreneurs that are ripping people off today. Right? The, the The church has a long, dark, pathetic, disgusting history of ripping people off because they're money worshippers. That's happened. That happened then. It's still happening now. And somebody's selling snake oil. Okay? So that's that's true. That was happening. They were ripping people off. But Jesus didn't flip the tables because he was like, these exchange rates are outrageous. What's What's actually going on here is he's upending the entire sacrificial system. He's going, this whole way of relating to God through the sacrificial system is changing. There's a, a Jewish scholar, his name is Jacob Newsner, and he says it this way. Jesus' actions were unthinkable because they upended the sacrificial system. Everybody expected the Messiah to attack Rome. Nobody expected the Messiah to attack the sacrificial system. Jesus flipped the tables on the sacrificial system because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice coming to replace the system. Jesus is the gracious king who gives us what we need. He's not a mascot to our agenda who does what we expect. Which leads to the final thing. That Christ the king is the lord of rest. Now imagine being there when this all happens. There is dust everywhere. Animals running. Livestock bleeding. There is feathers flying from the doves that have been released from their cages. There is dust everywhere. There is money rolling and chinkling down on, on the on the stone uh streets. It is a it is a total disaster zone. People are running and <laughs> screaming. Jesus is flipping tables. It is this humongous scene. And imagine that you're there. And then the dust settles. And I think a good question to ask would be, now what are we gonna do for a sacrifice? Because that's why everybody was there, right? You're going there to prepare to give a sacrifice, to atone for your sin. That's why absolutely everybody was there. What are we gonna do for a sacrifice? And the answer is, you would have been looking at it. As the dust settles, there's Jesus standing. He's the only thing left. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the one replacing the system. He is the great high priest. He is the one undoing everything that everybody understood about how they could possibly be made right with God. And he presents himself as the only way, full stop. And so because he didn't just cleanse the temple, he replaced it. And because he didn't just straighten out the sacrificial system, he replaced it. He presents himself as the high priest. Dr. Matz is a professor of philosophy and religion at Grandview College. And he comments on this passage this way. He says, God is so for you as your defender. He was willing to be against himself as your accuser. And you know, after this happened, after the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Pharisees set those tables back up They set them back up, and they went back to their old way of doing things for 37 more years-ish until AD 70 when Rome burnt the temple down. They set the tables back up. Why did they do that? Because the religious mind cannot accept that everything God required from us, he provided for us in Jesus Christ by his grace. And you and I can set the tables back up. We can set the tables back up and relate to God in the wrong way. We can set the tables back up and uh, think we gotta get back into button pushing and and lever pulling with God. Um, You know, when the church suffers from gospel amnesia, this is what we do. Here in the middle of this global pandemic, do you pray and meditate um, and go to God in order to secure your provision and the idea that if I do these things, God's going to get me through this. I should pray, you know, I should pray. Kids, let's gather around the table. We should pray. We should read the scriptures. We should meditate on it so that God will see that I'm being faithful and good and my spiritual disciplines are in order and so that he'll take care of me so that at the end of this, I'll be healthy so that at the end of this, I'll have a job still. no. We don't need to do it for any of those reasons. We do need to gather together with our families and pray. And we do need to be going to God in prayer every day. And we do need to be going to his scriptures every day and getting them in our souls and meditating on them. It's good and right that we should be doing all of those things because they're formative. But we don't do them to set the tables back up to make sure that God will take care of us. No, united to Christ by grace and faith, we already have the assurance of God's provision. So we do all those things, not because we need things. We need God. We need the Jesus of that Palm Sunday. We need the Lord of rest. We need the King of Kings who flipped the tables over and stood there in the midst of the dust storm and said, see, I'm the only one standing here. I'm the one that you need. I'm the one that you need to turn to in prayer and in meditation. Come and find your rest in me. The King of Kings is the Lord of rest. You know, the crowds thought, of course, that Jesus came to put everything right with Rome, but he came to put us right with God. And there's an, an author and a researcher, um, New Testament theologian named D.A. Carson. And he draws our attention to this small and quiet and beautiful miracle in the middle of all of this. I've shared it before and I'm gonna share it again because it's so poignant. He says this, you know, Jesus is riding this unbroken animal and that's where he draws our attention to. I know that some of you watching this, some of you in our Redeemer family, You've done some horseback riding. You enjoy it. And I'm about to talk about horseback riding. And I've never been on a horse in my life. And uh, those of you who do enjoy horseback riding, please do not invite me, Um, thinking that will be a blessing, it will not. Um, Take a picture of yourself, send it to me, and that will be a tremendous blessing and I'll really enjoy that. But I've never been on a horse, no intentions of being on a horse, but here's what I know about uh, horses. If they're not broken, They're not quiet. They will throw you off. Here's what D.A. Carson gives us. Uh, In the midst of all of this commotion, an unbroken young animal remains totally calm under the hands of Jesus, the one who controls nature and stills the storm. Jesus is the Lord of all, and he is the Lord of all who are under his hand, and there is harmony and there is peace. This quiet miracle foreshadows the healing and the restoration that is coming to all nature. And so while our world groans and is in great unrest, we find comfort united to Christ. He is our Lord of rest. Redeemer family, his grace gives hope that anchors us, joy that lifts us, endurance that keeps us, and his peace in the midst of all of this quiets us. The entire world is straining their eyes right now. The entire world is straining their eyes to see into the thick fog that is the future with nervous, anxious uncertainty. How many newscasts, podcasts, blogs, and tweets have you seen this past week where everybody is asking the question and trying to predict when this is all going to be over? Everybody is straining their eyes, trying to see into the future. But in the midst of all of this commotion, our souls are quieted under the sovereign hand of our Christ the King, who is the Lord of rest. Mm -hmm. Let's pray.